Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by people like you. Patrons through Patreon. Want a patch? Want a plaque? Just want to help support this show? Find out how to add your support at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 306, The Maquis, Parts 1 and 2. Welcome in the Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, or two, seeing who says what and whether it all holds up today. This week, The Maquis, parts one and two. The ones where Ben's old friend goes rogue for a cause. Also, we're going to war. Maybe. John's got trivia coming up in a moment, but first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Two episodes, I'm assuming that could mean as much as twice the trivia. I'm going to get out of your way, John. Please do that trivia thing that you do so well. We have a lot of plot coming up, so I tried to narrow it down a little bit. But if you'll indulge me, trivia for the Maquis, parts one and two. Part one was written by Rick Berman, Michael Piller, Jerry Taylor, and James Crocker, with the teleplay credit going to James Crocker, and in the director's chair, David Livingston. So we know those names on the production end pretty well by now. Uh, James Crocker got the story credit on Paradise, which was the most recent of his episodes that we covered. David Livingston, of course, has been with Trek since the start of TNG as a unit production manager. The director credits followed then, and we most recently discussed his episode, Playing God. Part two of the Maquis, almost the same writing crew, but you sub out James Crocker for Ira Stephen Bear, both with the story credit and the teleplay credit. It was directed by Corey Allen. So again, all well-known names from the DS9 staff, and the most recent of Corey Allen's contributions that we discussed was Paradise. This actually is the last episode of Star Trek he directed. Also of note is that Corey directed Journey's End for TNG, which aired a couple of months before the McKee Part 2. Definitely a tie-in to the background on what's happening here with the Cardassians and the Federation colonists. So, of course, we already know a little about the McKee from watching TNG. 
but this is actually the first episode of Star Trek in air date order to feature them. So while that concept took root in Journey's End, and we then explored a little more with Ro Laren in Preemptive Strike. Now, we see a Vulcan costume here on Sakona, and you may have seen it elsewhere, too. I have it on very good authority from friend of the show April Hebert, who worked at Star Trek The Experience longer than anyone, <laughs> that the very same dress was worn there by Vulcan Professor T'Pril. The original dress was sold at one point, but April's daughter later created a replica. Now, Cisco and Hudson in this episode, we learn, uh, both went to the Mazurka Festival. Just thought I'd bring that up because it's a great biographical detail that they are both into Polish folk dancing. Who would know that that was such a thing in the 24th century? Now, let's talk about guest stars. Gull Evek is back, played by Richard Poe. Gull Dukat, of course, is played by Mark Alimo. And Admiral Necheyev is also back, played once again by Natalia Nagulich. We have William Samuels here, played by Michael A. Kravik. Now, he's been kicking around TV guest roles and some feature films since the mid-1980s. This is the first of three Trek appearances for him. We will see him in different roles in both Voyager and Enterprise. Amaros is played by Tony Plana, and Tony has had a massive career in front of the camera. In addition to guest roles, he was a regular on Ugly Betty, playing Betty's father, Ignacio. He had recurring roles on Desperate Housewives, Alpha House 24, and many more. You might say he has had a plethora of roles. Uh, Wait, I'm sorry, a plethora of roles? Yeah. Can, can do you know what a plethora is? Uh, see, I do. You know, here's the thing, though. <laughs> you yes. could say he has a plethora of roles. You could also say he's infamous. Mm-hmm. So, so more than famous, he's he's infamous. Yeah, that that's... would be a thing you could say. Okay, so what we're getting at here is that Tony plays Hefe in the Three Amigos, and we could just stop now and do the next forty-five <laughs> minutes about the Three Amigos. Hang on a second. He was in mm-hmm. the Three Amigos. He was. He was. I, I didn't know that's what we were doing. That's yeah. weird. All right. Moving on, we also have John Shuck as Legate Par. And now, of course, we've seen and talked about John Shuck before. You might know him from frequent appearances as Daddy Warbucks in various stage versions of Annie, or maybe from his two appearances on The Love Boat. But more likely, you know that he is all over Star Trek. In Star Trek 4 and 6 as a Klingon ambassador, he turns up in Voyager and later for two episodes of Enterprise. Incidentally, he was married to Star Trek guest star Susan Bay until 1983. That was a few years before she married Leonard Nimoy. Bertila Damas plays Sakona. Now, born in Cuba, Bertila really started to show up in TV roles in the early 90s. Shows like NYPD Blue, Dexter, King of the Hill. She does have one more guest spot on Star Trek coming up in Voyager. And finally, Bernie Casey as Calvin Hudson. Now, here's someone who is so recognizable to many different audiences. Bernie was a pro football player before turning to acting, and he landed in many high-profile projects. He's in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Revenge of the Nerds. He's hilarious in I'm Gonna Get You, Sucka. And he has a distinction of being the first black actor to play CIA agent and James Bond's friend, Felix Leiter, in Never Say Never Again. 
We Lost Bernie in 2017. When good guys go bad, and a bad guy seems to be working for good, you have stumbled across the Maquis. Part 1. Prologue. Nothing to see here. Just some Cardassians hanging out at DS9, loading some equipment into their ship, the Bachnor, and... Wait, uh, who's the guy we've never seen before in the Starfleet uniform creeping around? Well, from Ops, Dax, and Kira monitor as the ship pulls away, then... Something happens. An impulse overload, and before anyone can do anything, the Bachnor explodes, killing everyone aboard. Act 1. Answers as to why the ship exploded aren't coming easy, but O'Brien and Dax may have narrowed it down to an implosive device, definitely sabotage. There's another thing. There are traces of mercassium, which the Federation uses in field generators, and definitely not something they share with Cardassians or anyone else. It'll take more time to pull the pieces together. While everyone waits, welcome aboard Commander Calvin Hudson. He's the attaché to the Federation colonies in the demilitarized zone along the Cardassian border, and he and Benjamin Sisko are old friends. They catch up for a moment before it gets serious. Cal's job is to oversee and protect the former Federation colonies that are on their own after the treaty with the Cardassians. Those people don't want to leave the lives they've created, and they're feeling a bit abandoned. Cal's sure that the incident with the Bachnor won't be an immediate entree to more fighting, but something will give some time. Remember Suspicious McCreeper from the beginning? He's told by a Vulcan woman to lay low, and he scurries off. But these two are being watched by two different aliens who also scurry off. The Vulcan woman is Sakona, and she introduces herself to Quark since she's got business on her mind. He's a little flirty and convinces her to come back later for dinner since the business deal is top secret. Creepy Guy is on his way to laying low in his quarters, but one of those mysterious aliens we saw minutes ago steps in front of him and accidentally drops something. It's a diversion, so the other alien can knock him out with a hypo, then drag him off to who knows where. Act 2. Ben Sisko has an unexpected guest in his quarters, Gul Dukat. He says he's there unofficially to help Ben get to the bottom of who blew up the Bachnor before something worse happens. He says it was people from Starfleet who carried out the sabotage, and to prove it, he and the commander will take a trip to one of the colonies in the demilitarized zone which is not terribly demilitarized. Zooming toward the Volan colony in the DMZ, Sisko and Ducat make for a tense buddy team-up. As they trade barbs, a distress call comes in, though, from a Federation merchant ship under attack by two Cardassian shuttles that have been heavily armed. Ducat seems genuinely shocked and agrees with Sisko that they need to intercept to find out what's going on. The merchant ship can't or won't respond to Sisko. The Cardassian ships ignore Gul Dukat. Then another ship, Federation by design but with an unknown configuration, swoops in to destroy the two Cardassian ships. It's all over in a moment, and Dukat stresses to Sisko that they're facing the emergence of a war being waged outside the Cardassian or the Federation's reach. Act 3 Quark gets to wooing Sakona with food and wine. 
He's doing his best to be charming and turn this simple business discussion into a date, but commerce must be discussed. Sakona is looking for weapons, phasers, photon torpedoes, cobalt-thorium devices, and more. This leaves Quark feeling a bit out of his element. Finally arriving at the Volan colony, Sisko and Dukat were definitely not expected, and they walk into an argument between Gullivec and Commander Hudson about what just transpired. Calvin insists that Federation ship was carrying medical supplies to another colony. Evec says they were carrying weapons. Why were the Cardassian ships so heavily armed and unresponsive to Gull Dukat? Well, to defend themselves from the obvious terrorist activities of the Federation colonists, Evec insists, and just in case anyone needs proof of terrorism, Evec produces a very convenient taped confession made by William Patrick Samuels, the creeper who was kidnapped from DS9. When Calvin asked to question Samuels, Evec reveals a body, giving the story that Samuels killed himself while being held. Infuriated, Amaros, one of the colonists, leaps across the table and attacks Gull Evec until Dukat and Calvin can break it up. Act 4. Samuels was real salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. Calvin knew him, and he understands. The Federation colonists are living in fear that their homes are being taken away, and the risk of attack by Cardassians is persistent. He also thinks the Cardassians are shipping weapons, quietly, to any of their people who want to stir up trouble. So did Samuels blow up the Bachnor? Cal says he doesn't know. And how about some real talk? Ben asks his friend if the Federation colonists are organizing some kind of terrorist campaign. Again, Cal says he doesn't know, but he understands why they would. On the ride back to DS9, Sisko calls out Guldicott for knowing about Samuels before they even got to the colony. The only downside Ducat sees is that Evec should not have interrogated Samuels to the point of his death. He lost an advantage. But what about the Bachnor? Ducat swears on the life of his children that it was not carrying weapons. Quark wraps up his deal with Sakona. She's got to get out of DS9 soon, and she says the latinum he asked for has been paid. Would she like to stay a while, he'd like to know? Maybe some other time. The Vulcan does find Quark intriguing. O'Brien has news for Sisko, news that he already knows, that implosive device on the Bachnor had to be Federation design. Kira jumps in, too. The Cardassians can't be trusted. She knows from living under their rule for 26 years. And if Sisko has any sense, then he'll realize the Cardassians are the enemy here, not the Federation colonists who are resisting them. Around this time, Sakona and a man in a Starfleet uniform knock out the guard assigned to Guldicott's quarters and tell him that Sisko needs him at Airlock 11. Ducat catches on pretty quickly. No Sisko, this must be a trap. He fights back, but in short order he is stunned by a phaser and carried away. Act 5. Time to tighten the screws. Sisko wants Odo to review every possible security angle. We know Ducat was taken by a Vulcan woman and a man in a Starfleet uniform. Where? Well, only two ships have left the station. One through the wormhole, and the other a Galador freighter. It registered a destination of Farius Prime, but that was a forgery, according to Dax. Once they trace its warp signature, 
yeah, it's probably headed to the demilitarized zone, which is exactly where Sisko will return, and as he departs Ops, Kira informs him of a message from that area taking credit for the kidnapping, signed the Maquis. In the shuttle now, Sisko, Kira, and Dr. Bashir are in pursuit. It will take them to a difficult stretch of space, the Badlands, and on to an M-class asteroid. In search of that Galador ship in Gull Dukat, the three beam down to be greeted by an armed party of colonists, led by Calvin Hudson. Part 2. Prologue. Calvin's Starfleet uniform has been traded in for something civilian. He's thrown in with the Maquis since the Federation, he feels, has abandoned them. If only Sisko could see it like him, they need help. They need to stop the Cardassians from harassing them first, since the treaty is meaningless to them. What Sisko wants is proof, though. Proof that the Cardassians are arming their own colonists. And where is Gold Dukat, anyway? No deal. To buy himself some time, Calvin and his group of Maquis stun Sisko, Kira, and Bashir. Act 1. Back now at DS9, Sisko has some stuff to deal with. A legate representative of the Cardassians is on his way. He wants O'Brien to see if he can figure out where Gul Dukat ended up, and Admiral Necheyev has stopped by for a visit, not purely social. She's pressing Ben to find Dukat and tamp down the actions of the Maquis, while he's trying to explain that the Maquis feel abandoned and threatened by a treaty that is being ignored. When the Admiral leaves, Sisko unloads a bit on Kira. It's one thing for someone with all the comforts of Earth to speechify about values and treaties. It's another thing entirely to be living in a remote colony when you're fighting to survive. A call comes from Odo that he's caught one of the Vulcan's accomplices. Quark! He claims he had no idea what Sakona was up to regarding Gold Dukat, but he did help her acquire some weapons, purely as the middleman. He cooperates with Sisko, says he'll get him a complete list of the transaction, and a reminder that whatever she was up to was under a time crunch. Something will go down in a few days. Legate Parn, representing Cardassian Central Command, meets with Sisko to try to clean up this Dukat mess. You see, it was Dukat and a few misguided officers who were funneling weapons into the demilitarized zone. They don't care now if the Maquis have Dukat. He would be executed anyway. Um, bye. Certainly, neither Sisko nor Kira trust anything that was just said, but it was enlightening for the fact that Legate Parn just confirmed what Sisko already knew, that there is a flow of weapons coming from Cardassia's Central Command. Things are stepping up. Three Federation settlers on Hakdun 7 have been killed in retaliation for the Baknor incident. Meanwhile, Chief O'Brien has narrowed down a few places where the Maquis ship may have dropped off Gul Dukat. It's a start. Sisko, Odo, and Bashir will take off from the Rio Grande to try to find him. Act 2. Sure enough, Dukat is somewhere. At present, he's being forcefully mind-melded with Sakona, and it's not working. He's a little too mentally disciplined, which leads to a discussion of more aggressive interrogation techniques. Just as Amaros approaches with a phaser, Sisko appears out of nowhere, demanding that he stop whatever it is he's about to do. The standoff doesn't last long until it turns into a phaser firefight. Sisko's side wins, taking back Dukat and the others, but he says Amaros is free to go, back to Calvin Hudson with a message. 
Sisko hasn't told Starfleet the details. There's still time to solve this, and he has Cal's uniform. Act 3. Ducat, safely on board DS9, enjoys a meal and then a conversation with Sisko. The Gull asks about the fate of the prisoners, and Sisko explains that if they're innocent, they'll be given their freedom. Funny, that's not how trials go on Cardassia, Ducat explains. The outcomes are already known, guilty because... guilty? They're all a show to comfort the people. Hey, funny thing, when Legate Parn dropped by, he pinned the blame for smuggling weapons on you. Oh well, I suppose there will be a trial and it will all work out. Oh. Ducat didn't actually know about the weapons, and he's on the outs with the Central Command, at least about this. He tells Sisko they'll make a deal. He will help them stop the weapons as long as Sisko helps him stop the Maquis. Deal. At the next morning staff meeting, there's a new face, Gull Ducat. After Odo shares the long shopping list of Maquis weapons, attention turns to how the Cardassians are arming their people. Ducat says to have a look at the Zeppelites. They've done it in the past, and they've never been caught. Coming up, one Zeppelite freighter. It's not responding to hails from the runabout, and Ducat suggests opening fire to kill the crew, then tow the ship back with them. Okay, uh, maybe not that plan. Sisko fires over their bow to get the attention of the freighter captain. Talk, talk, talk. Not working. Ducat now steps in and lays the smackdown. You will lower your shields. We are taking you and your cargo back with us. Plus, you will sign a confession about smuggling weapons. Boom. Done. Act 4. Oh, look at these two. Sakona and Quark. In a cell together in Odo's security station. Sakona is driven by the logic of helping the Maquis defend themselves in the name of peace. But Quark has a better explanation. Peace is a commodity. And right now, with both sides having weapons and their Cardassian shipments exposed, peace can be had at a bargain. Sit down. Talk. No need to keep escalating. Sakona sees the logic. Sisko and Ducat mull over what's happening. There's a Cardassian weapons depot being covered up in a civilian area that the McKee plan to attack sometime within the next couple of days. It'll get ugly. Sisko doesn't know where it is, but Ducat could probably find out if he still has some friends in the Central Command. What's left to do in the meantime is for Sisko to go back to Volon 3 and see his old friend. Ben barges into a meeting of the colonists, insisting that they tell their Maquis friends not to make the attack of the Cardassian colony. It would violate the Federation Treaty with Cardassia, making them an enemy of both, and Sisko will be there waiting to stop anyone who tries. That all might sound good on paper, but Calvin Hudson and a number of armed Maquis walk into the room. Sisko is there to say that the treaty will hold. All they have to do is stop the attacks. But Cal is convinced he's in a war, and he'll do what it takes, even if it means going through Sisko to win. To remind his friend of his principles, Sisko brought with him Cal's Starfleet uniform, which gives off a nice temporary glow as Calvin disintegrates it with his phaser. Act 5. Ducat source says the Cardassian weapons are on the Brima colony, which is where they will need to go to stop the attack. 
If the Cardassians are aware of an incoming attack, they will fight back, and they will probably alert the Central Command. The only advantage Sisko has is hiding out to stop the McKee ships before they can get to Brima. With three runabouts, Sisko and his crew leave DS9 to intercept, and before you know it, Calvin and his two ships appear. There's a bit of fancy flying, followed by tractor beams. Cal's ship fires to disable Sisko's tractor beam, and subsequent shots take out navigation on the runabout Kira's piloting, as well as one of the Maquis ships. O'Brien's runabout circles to pick up Kira and Dax. With Calvin's ship and Sisko's the only two left in the fight, more shots are fired. Sisko's navigation is down, but so are Cal's weapons. Calvin only has the option to run, and Ben only has the option to fire, which Ducat is really encouraging. Over the comms, Sisko begs his friend one more time, don't go back to the Maquis, you're throwing your life away. Yes, Cal says, but I'm starting a new one. Ducat is stunned. Sisko was blinded by sentimentality when he had the opportunity to end this once and for all. Sisko says he did his job, stopped the Maquis attack, and won't kill a good man in the process. Back on DS9, back to the usual, but Sisko asked Kira if he prevented a war or just delayed the inevitable. The end. That was a lot. That that was uh, that was more than the usual. That was yeah. more than well. It's two episodes. Yeah, I don't know if you yeah. noticed. That's like ten acts plus two prologues, which mm. is like like eleven nine. I don't know. <laughs> there's a lot. Hey, was more it more than seven? Yeah, more than seven. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Uh, was it weird to you to have such a Cardassian heavy episode on Deep Space Nine without seeing plain, simple Garrick? I miss plain, simple Garrick. I really yeah. do, because he's usually, usually there to offer like what, what you needed. I'm not saying they could have boiled this down to one episode, but if you wanted to find any uh, fat to trim on this at all, all you need to do is have Garrick show up and, and whisper into Cisco's ear like, hmm, did Ducat really know or not? Hmm, do you trust the legate or not? You know, something like that. Right. And you're, you're good. I you're think, good. honestly, you could have boiled this down to one episode. You think? I do. Yeah, I was thinking about that as I was watching it, you know, <laughs> more than once for this episode. I thought, yeah, you could if you took that, you took that, whatever. I mean, it's yeah. cool that you have uh, like a Parn or Parn uh, come mm -hmm. in, right? But it would have added an interesting element to uh, uh, Garrick. Yeah. If he had actually been the one to say, you know, who doesn't know about this for a reason? Is, uh, <laughs> right. is is Galdacott because then yeah. you're then you're still sort of like you know doing that whole you know how connected is he what is he how is he connected to all of this stuff thing right um, and it would also not be weird that the only other Cardassian on Deep Space Nine is not seen in this episode no look I'm I'm always up for a little more Garrick uh, I think he's he's awesome so yeah he would have been uh, a nice addition to this. Um, Hey, uh, way back in the beginning, look, I mean, there, there's so many uh, names and places and, and species covered in this. But early on, we had an incoming bullion vessel. And we know what that means. Somebody's getting a haircut. <laughs> did you notice, by the way, there was also a bullion in the Maquis? I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah, because yeah. even though he's on the, you know, rough and tumble frontier, Cal likes a good shave. Yeah, yeah. Somebody needs to keep him in shape. 
So that's good. Um, and man, we have mention of Captain Bode with a transparent skull. Mm-hmm. And just that sounds cool as hell. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> that's OK. That's Here's awesome. the thing, though. Um, mm-hmm. It's not his fault that Galamites have transparent skulls is what uh, Dax, I think, says to Kira. Do they also have transparent skin? Because mm-hmm. for all we know, I have a transparent skull. We've never seen it, right? Right, right. So, like, I mean, are they like a carapace-covered people whose, you know, skull is transparent, but everything else isn't? I mean, how is it exactly... What do they look like? I. It would be nice to see one. Uh, if anybody's got a picture of one... <laughs> <laughs> Let us know, Captain Bode or not. Yeah. Uh, so when Cal shows up, and I just have it as a uh, as a script note uh, as I'm rewriting the script as I go along. Insert uncomfortable laugh about Dax's gender and looks here. Go Ben and Cal. That was a big laugh. Yeah. It was a little uncomfortable. I'm just saying. Yeah. It's it's weird. I mean, I guess it does the whole it does the whole thing right where. We're establishing more of a history really quickly because it sounds mm-hmm. like this is one of Ben's best friends ever. And, yep. you know, we've never heard of him, but oh, well, Dax has heard of him. So, you know, this isn't just something they made up for this episode. Yeah. And everybody's best friends with Dax or at least Curzon or some form. Except yeah. for Jadzia, oddly enough. <laughs> right. Jadzia was not yeah. best friends with Curzon Dax, which is kind of weird. Uh, you did know, by the way, when Cal came on that things were going to go poorly. Like, even before he yeah. said three words, it was when they hung on Jadzia saying, next time. It's like, oh, well, mm. they're never going to see each other again. At least, right. at least not in any yeah. kind of good way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, exactly. it's almost as if Cal showed up and said, I'm three minutes from retirement. You know? <laughs> Something's going to go wrong. You just know right. it. Yeah. Hey, uh, since I'm not really a, uh, a sports guy, I had to look up this term, uh, but I, I was surprised that with baseball being a dead sport in yeah. the 24th century, I'm surprised that chin music is just a term that, that anybody would know. Or maybe Ben and Cal are the last two uh, uh, baseball fans who actually know what chin music is. All right. Well, I mean, two things, because originally I saw that you had noted this and I was going to say, well, they're friends. I mean, who knows? Maybe it was their love of baseball that actually got them to like, you know, uh, be pals with each other. Nope, 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 nope. Polish like, folk dancing. I'm going well, no, to say that was I gotta say that was it. That was the thing that they also did. But here's the thing. If you're walking down the street, right, and you hear somebody mm-hmm. make some obscure reference to the 64 World's Fair... Mm-hmm. You're going to be like, whoa, hey, wait a second. And you might even talk to that person. Here's mm-hmm. the other thing yeah. I don't understand, though. I am also not a sports guy. Mm-hmm. How do you not know chin music? I just never came up. Really? Just, no, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I'm not a baseball fan, but I know I know what that is. You're, you know, you're, you're brushing them off the plate at that point. I'll explain mm-hmm. that term to you later as well. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you. That's, that's very helpful of you. <laughs> no nice. problem. All right. Hey, uh, let's see. So Cisco calls Kira when Guldicott appears in his quarters, and she takes exactly enough time to respond to Cisco to have words with Dicott, then doesn't close the channel before going into his conversation. I love, like, there are little production things in this episode that look, we we all know and we all accept because it's Star Trek and we're just there, we're, we're kind of getting through the story. But that was a really interesting one. Yeah. I thought. Well, yeah. they might be testing smart communicators. You know, a, a communicator that knows, like, he doesn't want her to hear this. No, I'm going to go ahead and mute that because that would be, that'd be, that'd be embarrassing. Yeah. 
Hey, I have an idea for a Star Trek product. I think that uh, education is power. Joy is vulnerability. That should be a cross-stitch pattern by Gul Dukat. It actually, it should. You know, yeah. we have somebody who listens to this show regularly who does cross-stitch. We may have more than one person, but mm. there's one person I know. In fact, I have one of her cross-stitches up in my, uh, up in my office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just saying we might be able to prevail upon her. <laughs> that would be really nice. That'd be, that'd be pretty yeah. cool. Christmas is only 350-something days away as we record this, so mm-hmm. that could mm-hmm. be a thing. I got to say, props to Gul Dukat for just, like, calling it like he sees it. Uh, that's mm-hmm. another baseball term, by the way. I'll, I'll explain <laughs> that to you later, too. Okay, thank you. Of all the humans I have met, says Gul Dukat to Ben Sisko, you strike me as the most joyless and least vulnerable. Well, I'll give him the most joyless thing. You <laughs> have. <laughs> that was that that was a nice line. It, it's a good thing that they didn't uh mix that one up with uh you know Kirk's eulogy for uh, uh for Spock. Because you know, of all the humans or, or of all the people I've known in my journeys, you know, all the His souls was the I most know. Yeah. joyless. Joyless, at least right. vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, I can't let an episode go by if there's food in it without mentioning the foods. There's some good food styling on Quark's table. Uh, I can definitely identify some escargot shells. Uh, looks like some pastries on there. I think just to fill in some areas, some rice, maybe a, a marrow bone or two. Uh, it was very colorful. And there were flowers. So you have snails and flowers all, mm. uh, all together. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of uh, rules of acquisition. We had uh, 214 and we had number three, uh, both of which were uh, were used to decent effect in this episode. And uh, and let's see, the, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that there were, were tropes, TV tropes, and particularly Star Trek tropes in this episode. So there's just a, a couple that I have to point out. So um, you, you have that thing where the timing would never actually work in real life if you tried to pull this off. But because it's TV and the camera has a very limited scope, uh, then you can get away with it uh, just to heighten the drama. So uh, I'm going to say Gull Evek bringing Samuel's body in from behind the door. So other people had literally just walked through that door. So you got a couple of Cardassians waiting back there with a corpse, just waiting to be called in. Uh, The other one, you have uh, Sakona using the nerve pinch on uh, Guldicott's guard. Because what you see is you see Samuel's coming up and uh, uh, and he tries to, to, to do the distraction. And then just from behind the camera... You see Sakona's hand reach out, oh. but, but she's literally like right there. That explains it. She was hiding behind the camera. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay. So we'll give that one a pass. That, that's yeah. why he couldn't see her. Yeah. You have you have Cisco stopping uh, Amaros from torturing Ducat uh, because that's all about to happen, and and Cisco just walks right in at exactly that moment with a comment mm-hmm. on what was being said. Okay, and then I I think one of my favorites is you have Cal walking into the meeting room on Volon 3 after Cisco says he will stop the Maquis. And and Cal says, a very rousing speech, Ben. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So so not only were you behind a door, but the other doors opened before yours did. Yeah. Hey, you know, so, the only one of any of those, and I did not, I, I didn't pick up on any of those. The one that drove me nuts, mm-hmm. the Zeppelite commander has a cameraman. 
Oh, I, I mean, from from the from the communication chat that yes. they were having. Yes, from yeah. the communication chat because you know Ben's sitting there and he turns over to the side, and then you know he's like sitting in that one place, you know, static the whole time, and yeah. he like hails the zeppelite, and the zeppelite's like halfway across his his bridge. Uh-huh. While he's talking to the communicator, but then as he approaches, you know, where the communication station would be, the camera moves. It sort of tracks his <laughs> movement a bit. Oh, that's great. And it compensates. And I'm like, wow, the Zeppelites are like, I mean, they, it really matters to them. There's a, I know you haven't watched the Orville. I don't know why mm-hmm. you haven't watched the Orville, but I know you haven't watched the Orville. Yeah, I haven't seen it. In the very first episode of the Orville, and this is not a spoiler, mm-hmm. but in the very first episode, they make communication or they establish communications with, uh, with uh, the, the people that the uh, union is fighting. Mm-hmm. And he's just a little bit off center. And they're having this big discussion. They're like, you have to do this. You have to do this. And the captain is like, I'm sorry, can you, can you just move to your left like three inches? It's just, I mean, it's just, oh, that, no, there, that's perfect. Anyway. And then they go ahead and continue nice. because he had just been, of course, that wouldn't be a problem with the Zeppelites because, uh, you know, they got a cameraman. Let's see. We're going yeah. to need a smuggler. We're going to need a captain, a navigator. And, uh, and, and I can't work under these conditions. Can we get a cameraman in here as well, please? That's good. That's it. The one thing that I did notice with the Zeppelite uh, is that in some of that communication back and forth, he, he was actually looking kind of off camera at one point. So the shot from inside the runabout, uh, the, the camera POV is a little bit of an angle looking at that flat screen. Yeah. But instead of the Zeppelite looking forward at what would be the camera for his uh, communications station, he's kind of looking like off, like he's looking at Cisco or whoever else. Uh, I forget who was on which side. Yeah. But it's like he's looking at it. It's, it's just a little weird. It's a TV thing. Look, it's the limit of the technology. We get it. But it's still fun. Anybody who's ever watched Mission Log Live knows, though, that I sometimes move my camera from place to place. And so it's like some weeks I'll be looking straight at the camera and other weeks I'm like, you know, it's like, what's he reading? Sure. <laughs> right. Like, right. So maybe yeah. the Zeppelites are kind of like me. You know, they've got a cameraman, yeah. but he's sort of was moving around kind of doing. Mm-hmm. Could have been worse. They could have had like a Woody Allen camera from like the early to mid 90s. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah like everybody who like everybody who communicates with the Zeppelites immediately gets space sick. Yeah. Hey, uh, since we, we just mentioned that meeting room on Volon 3, uh, and dramatically the doors open to reveal the armed Maquis who are going to prevent Cisco from doing what he's there to do, mm-hmm. how many doors does that one tiny, tiny meeting room need? <laughs> they, they have at least three. All of them. I think it needs all okay. of them. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's a tiny room, though. Yeah. It's a well, tiny it's room. lots of ways to get in and out, though, which is good. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I do love there, there's a great scene, uh, Ducat back on DS9. He, he's eating and he's talking to Cisco. Uh, and there's some marvelous acting, some great moments of realization. Um, there was a, a moment, though, that I thought was really weird. And I wondered if you did, too, that they punctuated that scene with the hmm from Cisco when he's leaving the room. Because I, I felt like we got everything out of that scene that we needed. We got the uneasy truce of them saying hey we can help each other right and 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 we already know it's uneasy we already know that it's weird but i i felt like you didn't need to indicate honestly i felt like though that it was uh, mirrored by the weird sort of like uh, first the considered look and then kind of the smile that Ducat gave after cisco left because cisco gives his little hmm and sort of like mm-hmm. a, tur- and a tilt of his head and walks away yeah. And the door closes because the door knows that the camera's done, 
<laughs> looking out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and and we come to Gul Dukat, who at first has sort of like his usual Gul Dukat look, but then there's almost sort of a smile on his face, but it's not like an I'm up to something smile, but more of like a... It, it, it felt like replicating what had happened with Cisco, honestly. Yeah. That I would yeah. completely let pass because it was like an interesting moment of... I mean, they find out they find out in this episode they have a few things in common, despite Cisco not wanting them to. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you think I would do something to your son, and then later he finds I didn't know you had children. I have seven. Seven. Yeah, you're a career military man, dude. How do you? Okay, but fine. You have seven. How do you have the time? I'm not saying. Right. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> they're finding out all the way through that they have you know a little things in common. And I thought it was interesting. You know that that was that that was. A moment of acknowledgement that there may be more respect there, at least for these episodes, uh, than you might yeah. have than you might have thought. Uh, sure. There was one other question that I had. And it was kind of a big question. Mm-hmm. So when uh, when when the McKee uh, uh, take credit, right? That comes in as a text mm-hmm. message, right? That comes in as text that Kira is reading. Right, I, I assume so. Yeah. yeah, and so she says they're calling themselves the the McQuiz, the McQuees. <laughs> <laughs> the Macuiz, I don't know. Or and then what I what I wondered was did they send it like you know Maki like spelled out, but then like was sort of one of those pronouncers, you know, like M A H, you know, hyphen, capital K E E to show the emphasis or the emphasis, oh, yeah. whichever. So they're calling themselves the Maku, the Mac. Oh, Maki. Okay, so I don't know. That that could be a French. Is French a thing? I don't even know. I get up in the morning, slaving for bread, sir, so that every mouth can be fed. Poor, 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 me, Zeppelites. Applause for the dumbest Vulcan in the quadrant. <laughs> is she really? Well, I don't know, is dude. She really? She's like, she's not heard of, you know, cultural idiosyncrasies or she doesn't have enough tact, I guess, to not say, oh, that's the way you do things. She's like, oh, you have a cultural idiosyncrasy. Well, you could call it that. Mm-hmm. You could also call it just, you know, me doing things the way I do things. Mm-hmm. The really big question I have, though, is how is a Vulcan, supposedly an eminently logical race, how is a Vulcan a member of the Maquis? So that's what I didn't get. And my note on a similar line was, what is up with Sakona? Um, is she, because is she a bad Vulcan? Yeah. Do you mean or, like an evil Vulcan or a dumb Vulcan? Take your pick. Okay. Uh, or or is she like other Vulcans that we've met who just happen to be able to logic themselves into positions of questionable morality? She, you know, she's actually going on a on a gut feeling uh, and she's just sort of decided like, well, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to use all the tricks of logic that I've learned mm-hmm. and say that this is a logical position. See, here's the thing. Despite Kirk trying to confuse him at the end of Star Trek three, what Spock knows is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or mm-hmm. the one. I can't see any Vulcan who's not. I'm forgetting his name. Spock's brother. Oh, Cybok. Uh, Cybok, thank you. I can't yeah. see any Vulcan who's not Cybok, you know, uh, thinking that the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the many, which is what we're dealing with here because we're talking about a group of people 
who have decided that what they want to do, where they are, and how they're being treated is more important than, you know, the rest of the Federation and the Cardassian Empire. They're willing to risk war uh, because they want things the way they want things. And mm. I can't see a Vulcan being like, well, that makes sense. <laughs> I need I need all the weapons, and I'm going to go to some guy who I've never met before and ask him for all the weapons and trust that this is all going to stay on the QT. Yeah. Well, and, and thank goodness that we have Quark there to share his words of wisdom and, and actually logic her back into a more reasonable position. Right. Which, again, you know? how I mean, I mean, Quark's a smart guy. Don't misunderstand me. But she's she's not. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And I don't mean she's not yeah. a smart guy. I mean, she's not smart. And I don't yeah. understand how any of that happened. It, it's more confusing to me than the Bolian being the member of the Maquis. Because I can't yeah. imagine that he's able to keep his shears that sharp, always on the run. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, it's an odd choice to have a Vulcan play that role. I really it, thought it, it was going to end up being a Romulan. The whole time I thought, you know, something's going to oh, happen and we're yeah, going to reveal. Yeah. It turns out she's actually... Because when it just turns out that she's a clueless Vulcan, then, yeah. you know, I don't get it. Okay, well, maybe when we come back for the uh, many, many follow-up episodes of Sakana, that will be revealed that she's actually a Romulan. Yeah. Um, yeah. See, I, I could actually buy that. That that would be cool. Well, let's talk about some of the other stuff in here, because uh, there's a lot going on in this episode. Um, it, you know, we, we've talked before kind of about themes of loyalty and obligation um, and, and sort of the, I, I guess the, the question for me is if the moral obligation to that, the, the order, the, the written order and the spirit of that Starfleet agreement, um, or is the obligation to the colonists who are affected. Uh, now, it was a very different thing. If you think way, way back to the end of TNG, toward the end of TNG with Journey's End, and uh uh, Picard and everybody else just sort of decides, well, we have this uh, formerly Native American group of uh, colonists who picked this planet, and they know that they're going to have a rough go of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the way, you're, you're no longer a part of the Federation yeah. because you, you're choosing to stay here. So <laughs> see ya. Yeah. Good luck. You know, um, <sighs> so does does Starfleet have an obligation to the colonists who chose to stay behind I, I you know if we go back to journey's end the answer would be no yeah yeah okay i think I, right. and i think the answer is still no i don't understand i mean they're doing they're for some reason writing this differently than what they wrote that because picard did make it very clear yeah. to the to the colony and journey's end they're like yeah, okay so listen really if we go we're gone if anything happens uh, it's happening to you, not as a Federation colony, but as a bunch of people who, you know, didn't take the ride that was offered. And, and even if you walk away with everybody understanding that and everybody agreeing to that, when that Federation starship gets far enough away, mm -hmm. but then they start hearing the cries of former Federation colonists who are getting blown to bits by Cardassians. Yeah. Do you do you turn back around because ah, the, these are... People from the same planet. These are people who, at least at one point, were bound under the same uh, agreements with us. The, these are possibly our brothers, our sisters, our our mothers, our fathers. Turn up the radio. <laughs> Turn up the 
turn up the radio so you can't hear the screams. Listen, mm. we've told you what's going to happen. I mean, look, this mm-hmm. is fiction. I mean, if you ask me in real life, I don't honestly know what you do. All right. But this is not real life. This is fiction. And so in this fiction, I say, turn up the radio. I say, you have to forget about them because you gave them every chance. This is like what happened in, um, oh, I can't, I can never remember what they're called. I'm sorry. But the people who came through the wormhole and decided they needed to live on Bajor. And, oh, and the yeah. Federation's right, like, hey, we found like eight other planets. And they're like, no, we're supposed yeah. to be on Bajor. And then they get all, you know, upset when they can't live on Bajor. And so they end up going to live someplace else, which actually makes them better. Forgive me. I know it's going to upset people. Makes them better than these colonists. <laughs> because in the mm-hmm. end, mm-hmm. even though they didn't like it, they went ahead and did what was sensible. Because they could have said, no, seriously, we're supposed to be on Bajor. Uh, let me get my guns. Which, yeah. which you know, is is practically what's going on with these people. And I know they've been there longer, but I don't. The, the part that I don't understand is why it seems everybody keeps saying from Admiral Nechev all the way down. Well, they're still Federation citizens. That's not the way that works. Right. <laughs> when they redrew right. the boundaries, you're on the other side of that boundary now. You're not a Federation citizen. This is not like Berlin. In you know, in the middle of 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 East Germany, or not the middle of East Germany. I'm I'm sorry. I'm really bad with geography, but it's not like you know a a an occupied city in the middle of an otherwise occupied country. I mean, this is we're drawing a line. We'd really like you to be on this side of it. Why in this episode is all of a sudden? Well, they're still Federation people, even though you know we told the other Federation people you're not Federation people anymore if you stay on the other side of the line. Right. Right. Yeah, I it, sure. <laughs> you know, I, do you, I mean, do, I, do you disagree? I, yeah, no, I don't. I, I don't. But I, I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of back at that real world place though, because I, again, that that's what I had to ask myself. If we're talking about Star Trek, though, as as a, a, a metaphor, as some sort of a, a show with morals, meanings, messages that has some relevance to real life, mm-hmm. even if this is a fictional setting. You know, I have to ask myself, well, is it entirely cold and callous if you say, this is the deal, we're turning away, we're not coming back, then what do you do when you start hearing the screams? Well, what level of sympathy do you have for missionaries who go to China? What level of sympathy do you have? Mm. I'm asking you personally. What level of sympathy do you have for somebody who goes to China, takes Bibles, gets arrested because it turns out that's illegal and then expects us to do something about it. Yeah. And and I would say my sympathy level would be almost none. Okay. And you got to figure life is not easy for those people, Mm -hmm. but you're not concerned about it. Why are we concerned about these people who stayed? I mean, first of all, they're all made up people. I will tell you honestly, and I, I know nobody imagines that this is the way that this is going. I don't understand why we're telling this story. Because it feels to me like the whole thing is actually just an indictment of the Federation, of the idea of the Federation. So why are we making up? I mean, we're making up something about this story now. I think if they had said they got the same, I think if they had written in, they got the same, you know, speech that the colony at Journey's End got, 
then we'd be like, why are we even going there? So we're making up this thing and saying, okay, well, actually, they're still members of the Federation. Okay, well, why are we doing that? There was, there was a lot about what happened in this episode that I didn't get. Why is Kira sympathetic to those colonists? Because the one thing she says is, I didn't have the option to leave. Right. And she's like, I yeah. know what these colonists are going through. Well, no, you don't, because they came and took over your home and wouldn't let you go anywhere. Before the Cardassians got here, the Federation said, hey, listen, the Cardassians are coming and we'd really like to take you someplace else. And they all said, no, 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 because I've been here for, oh, golly. Well, I remember when I moved here. OK, well, then you know what? You remember how to pack. Get out. Yeah. I mean, this is just because now these people are risking war they're risking galactic war and i know i'm supposed to feel for them and i'm supposed to feel for cisco and i'm supposed to feel for cal and there were a few times that this episode completely turned me off but i really don't understand like like why why kira is like you have to do something for these people because i mean i think i, I mean i don't know I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. there's a difference it was kira's home world and yet you know she says that she didn't have a choice how is she going to be sympathetic to somebody who does have a choice and chooses to stay? I, I, I can kind of understand Kira, though, only to the extent that the, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that, that she has some built in level of sympathy for what's going on just because she hates Cardassians to the core. You know, e- even in the relationship with uh, uh, Goldicott in this episode, Goldicott there's a lot of admirable stuff going on with him and she still does not like or trust. She's a little intrigued by him, but uh, does not like or trust him because of that history. So I, I can kind of see that her like Kira's Kira mostly runs on gut reaction to things anyway. Mm-hmm. She's, she's the opposite of uh, Cisco in that respect um, or, or even Dax in that respect. Um so I, I get that her emotional response to this is, oh, the Cardassians are doing something again to somebody else. Well, they are clearly the ones in the wrong here. Therefore, I will side with whoever is uh, being victimized by the uh, by the Cardassians, even if those quote unquote victims are people who are stockpiling weapons as well, because they must have a uh, a good reason for doing that. All right. I mean, I. At least I think that's the justification given in the story for it. Okay. You know, so I mean, it's just, I, I mean, it kind of get it. It feels to me like they want to tell a dark story here. And so they're finding all the ways they can to tell a dark story. I don't, I, mean, I don't doubt that. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't doubt that. And, and let's cut to the chase here with the, the dark element here. And I'll just read what, uh, Cisco says, which is, <laughs> on Earth, there is no poverty, no crime, no war. You look out the window of Starfleet headquarters and you see paradise. Well, it's easy to be a saint in paradise, but the McKee do not live in paradise. So I know that this is the big critical moment in this episode, in these two episodes. This is also kind of a distinction between DS9 and the rest of Star Trek that has come before it. Mm-hmm. And I, I heard that. And I thought, well, first of all, I thought of all the conversations that we have had in the past about, I mean, really ever since the original series, about those people who don't have jobs on starships and who don't live on Earth and who choose to go out and be, you know, miners and farmers and everything else that they can be on all these other planets and and, uh, moons and other M-class 
bodies out in the in the galaxy. Mm-hmm. You, you know, uh, they're not signing up for anything easy, uh, particularly. I mean, look, if you land on a planet with a bunch of spores, you might have it easy. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we, we asked ourselves that if the people who we're focused on in Star Trek are all coming from a privileged position. Uh, it, it's easy to be there when you're particularly on the Enterprise D and it looks like a hotel lobby and you have everything that you could possibly want all the time, except for the occasional fear of somebody, you know, setting off the self-destruct. Because that happens every now and then. Right. Um, but they have it pretty well. But if you were just to be dropped off someplace, and uh, even if you'd chosen to just start a new life there, um, it, it's not quite the same thing. It's not, not, you don't have quite the same comfort that you did before. Yeah, but you're choosing to not. I, I agree. You are choosing to not. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, it was more of a question, honestly, when we were watching TOS than it was when we were watching TNG, with the exception of, remind me, was Tasha Yar's world one where a colony had failed on some level? I, yeah, I th- yeah. think. That was I the want deal. to say it was yeah, a Federation yeah. colony that had failed, and that was mm-hmm. mind-blowing, but that was also in the very first season of TNG. For the most part, we did not you know, hear about things like that or see things like that. Now, you can say, well, the writers were just hiding the dark side from us, but it's not real. So the writers were actually just making up the dark side when there is a dark side, and they're making up a light side when there is a light side. I mean, it's all, yeah. It's all fiction. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting to me is when you read Cisco's speech, you left out... Uh, the part where our commanding officer, our member of Starfleet, says, do you know what the trouble is? The trouble is Earth. Mm. On Earth, there's no poverty, no crime, no war. The guy that we're following, the guy who's supposed to be leading all of this stuff, is saying, you know what the problem is? This uniform I'm wearing. And you could say it was in a fit of peak, but that's not something that you're going to hear Picard say, especially not to an underling. He might say it to a fellow captain. He might say it to an admiral. He might say it to Troy. He's not going to say it to Riker. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Out there, there are no saints, just people. Angry, scared, determined people who are going to do whatever it takes to survive, whether it meet with the Federation approval or not. First of all, no, they're not, because whatever it takes to survive was easy. Go to the new planet that the Federation will find and set up for you. Just like they did with the, you know, the people who came through the wormhole who they had never, ever seen before. All they had was a bad story. All they had was like a man. We have been hunted. You've been hunted. I'm so sorry. Let me look for planets for you. (laughs) So I got to feel like the Federation is going to do right by the people who are being displaced by what they're doing. So these people moved away from the Federation. Why? Maybe because life was too easy as far as they were concerned. Maybe they're Kirkian in their philosophy. But they do that, right? They set up colonies, and the Federation, from which these people have moved, come and say, hey, listen, we need to move you out of here, and they say no. And again, one assumes they would have gotten the same talk as the Journey's End people, but you know, even if they didn't, you know, why, is the Federation, why is the Federation doing this? Why are they getting involved with this? Should these people who want to start a war for the entire Federation be countenanced? When what they're doing is saying, no, me, here, I'm here. I've been here for so long, I get to stay here, and I'm willing to start an interstellar conflict for that. Um, 
they don't even know that the Cardassians are doing the thing that they suspect the Cardassians are doing. Eventually, we find out that they are, but they don't even know that when they go ahead and start taking up arms themselves. It's just, I mean, the whole thing just, so much of this episode just drives me insane. And then... Oh, I can tell. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, there <laughs> yeah. you go. Yeah. But the biggest part of it, honestly, is the part where Cisco made that speech. And I'm okay with that speech. I'm not okay with it coming from Cisco. Have Odo make that speech. Have Kira mm. make that speech. Have O'Brien make that speech. Because I will tell you, honestly, the times that I watched this, and I didn't mean to, and I tried not to... It literally lost me after he made that speech. He doesn't care. Why do I? And you can say, well, he comes back around in the end. No, all he does is stop a war for a time being. He even knows that. It's not that he believes in the Federation. It's not that he thinks what the Federation is doing is right. He just doesn't want everybody killing everybody. But he doesn't even stop his friend. He doesn't even stop his friend who is risking war in an entire section of the galaxy because he's his friend. I mean, they well, both believed give- in the same thing at one point, but now Cal doesn't. And it turns out, you know, and, and neither does Cisco, really. Well, do, do you give Cisco some credit, though, for trying over and over again to talk that sense into Cal? I mean, I know that we landed at a place where he's got to let him go. And by the way, that's the thing that I left out of trivia, that uh, Ira wanted this to end with Cal's death. It should have ended with Cal's death. Honestly, it should have ended yeah. with Gul Dukat. You know, like, I honestly thought this is what was going to happen. When Dukat's yeah. just sort of in the background, you can't see his hands. I figured right. Dukat was like lining up and targeting and was going to kill him. That would have been awesome. It would have been interesting because here's the <laughs> yeah. thing. Now what is more important to Cisco than, than ideals? Now what is more important to Cisco than, you know, anything is this guy who was willing to kill him mm-hmm. is this guy who is willing to get you killed and me killed and everybody else because of what he believes in because of the land that he sees as being taken away from somebody that was honestly never really theirs. I mean, they were there on it, but <sighs> I think we need to jump to the wrap up. You want to we do? All right. I think you got thoughts. All, All right. right. I'll meet you there. Fine. Okay. <laughs> With DS9's Doomsday Clock, stuck at 11.59 and 58 seconds, it is time to see what we can take from the Maquis. So usually coming into this segment, John, we actually do a thing where I talk about the title, and I got so head up in other stuff that I forgot to look up. Whether Maquis was actually a word, whether Maquis actually means anything, whether there is a reference, because we do that with the whole title thing. Uh, Maquis, is it? Maquis? Maquis? Maquis, I'm pretty sure. Maquis. Well, no, they sent sent a pronouncer with it, so so Kira knew it was Maquis. Yeah. Yeah, that was good, and and uh, very fortunate for uh, for her that uh, if she had not taken French, then uh, she had at least uh, a way to start to look that up. Well, yeah, uh, so uh, the Maquis were indeed an actual group of uh, guerrilla resistance fighters uh, during World War II, during the Nazi occupation of France. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that that was uh, an actual thing. They uh, the, these people who were getting away from the Vichy government, the watchful 
eye of the Vichy and um, trying to do what they could to subvert the German occupation. So uh, good on them for doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Aptly named group, aptly named couple of episodes here. Yeah, yeah, good good choice of words. Um, and, and now, Ken, that we are here safely on the other side of the break, and uh, we have the opportunity to look back mm-hmm. on uh, the Maquis Parts 1 and 2, uh, a story that could not be contained by one episode, some may argue. Um, we, we get to figure out if it all stood up. I feel like, Ken, you have some strong feelings on this episode. Yeah, so I might. I, I would like to ask you to share with uh, with me and with those who might be listening uh, what you thought about today's episode, whether or not it holds up. Okay. Um, I have prepared a written statement. <laughs> okay. All right. So that could also be texted <clears throat> to somebody signed the McKee or signed Ken. Or the Maquis. Yes. Or the Maquis. Yes. It, it's pronounced Queen. By the way, <laughs> uh, I think the problem that I have with this episode, John, is that no one believes in the Federation. Um, I don't know if I've ever told you about this friend of mine or not. Uh, I have a friend who advises the U.S. military and various world governments or you know, segments of various world governments. Hmm. And on his car around his license plate, he has a United Federation of Planets frame. And the reason he has that is because, in his opinion, it is the only such union that he's ever seen work. That's a real-life guy doing real-life things profoundly affected by Star Trek. When When Odo argues that Starfleet's respect of due process is quaint, when Kira tells her commanding officer, a Starfleet officer, that the Federation is naive, and when our leader is saying the problem with the Federation is the Federation, I don't know what we're doing. I spend this entire episode not caring about the crew of Deep Space Nine. I don't care about the Maquis. They're non-depressed and occupied people. They're colonists. They move there, and they can move again. And they were given the option to move again. Now, I, I also wrote a kind of funny thing last night. I thought it was funny anyway. <laughs> I applaud and support your desire to churn your own butter. I do. I make my own paper. And I get wanting to do something that you actually don't need to do just to see if you can. I get the sense of accomplishment that that instills. But if you churning your own butter might get you killed, and you're warned about that, and people offer you free butter, all the free butter you want as compensation for you not being able to churn your own butter for just a little while, you start to lose my support. Now, if you're then willing to risk getting me killed and hundreds of other people, thousands of other people, or tens or hundreds of thousands of other people, if you're willing to risk war and death of even one other person so you can go on playing pioneer, I have another suggestion for your churn. We have a very nice gentleman who wrote to us a few weeks back suggesting that you find somebody who likes DS9 to co-host this show with you. And here's the thing. I like a lot of Deep Space Nine. Paradise, Progress, Blood Oath, except for the part where our Starfleet officer lets an underling go off and participate in revenge killing. Shadow Play, Sanctuary, In the Hands of the Prophets, I could keep naming episodes of Deep Space Nine that I like. When I take issue is when Star Trek itself, in the form of Deep Space Nine, argues that Star Trek's ideals are naive. When it comes to this, I would rather see life imitate art, not Star Trek imitate life. So I got no use for this episode. Got no use for this episode. Except to remind me, you know, 
what it is I don't like about the episodes I don't like. What's really cool is it does make episodes like Shadow Play and Paradise and Sanctuary um, that much better. But also, mm-hmm. I am legit surprised when we get episodes like that now, because more often than not, Deep Space Nine seems to want to celebrate the darkness, seems to want to celebrate the ambiguity. Whereas even if it seemed hokey sometimes, <laughs> what TOS and TNG, and they didn't always get it right, and the animated series even, what they wanted to celebrate was the possibilities of the things we could achieve and the things that we could do. Not celebrate the struggle. Let me ask you something. Is it is it more that you think that this episode is an indictment of the Federation or that it's the, the failure of, in this case, the person at the top, uh, Cisco, to to embrace those ideals it's the fact that it's the fact that somebody wanted to do a coloring book that was dark it's it's the fact that mm-hmm. you and i have talked before about whether or not it's better to have somebody who's a fan of star trek write star trek or somebody who doesn't know that much about star trek write star trek and one mm-hmm. of the things that we talked about at one point was sometimes if you bring somebody in who's not a fan of star trek they give you an interesting look at an entire world right Whereas Mm -hmm. somebody who's a fan of Star Trek will give you a really detailed look at this one corner that they've always sort of wondered about. Yeah. These are people who I I do believe love Star Trek. These are people who know Star Trek. And these are people who always thought, but you know what would make Star Trek really cool? And the thing is, you got to figure Star Trek was already cool. That's why they loved it. And I don't know why they get to take it dark at that point. My, my, My problem with this is not... Cisco indicting the Federation. My problem with this is why are we writing a commanding officer who doesn't believe in the thing that he's commanding? Why doesn't he go join the Maquis? Why? I mean, why? If he can stand there and say to her, you know what the problem is? The problem is this organization for which I work. Why is he working for this organization? That, that, that's my yeah. issue. Yeah. How about, how about you, John? <laughs> well, well all right, so here's the thing. I, I, I don't think you're wrong at all. And, and I think you, you've really nicely summed up kind of the, the philosophical break that DS9 uh, ha- has had, is having as we watch it. But only about 50% of the time, because then you do get those episodes like mm-hmm. the episodes that mm-hmm. I talked about. I mean, and, yeah. that, and that's the thing. I think there are some people who love Deep Space Nine so much, who love Cisco so much that they can't stand when I have anything negative to say about it. I, yeah. I'm, I don't hate this show. I hate some episodes. I hate, yeah. I hate a number of episodes of Deep Space Nine. I love a number of episodes of Deep Space Nine. I, I can't help which ones those happen to be, and I can't help whether you like those more or like those less than the ones I like more or less. It's just, I'm, I'm you know... Somebody asked me to say what I saw, and so I did. As as someone who talks to you in depth about Star Trek every week, both on air and off air, <laughs> I will back you up on that. Uh, that yeah, I, I, first of all, the job here is to figure out what is the message at the heart of an episode. It's not to sit here and figure out everything that we like, nor is it to sit here and figure out everything that we don't like. It's to figure out what is being said. And we've had multiple seasons of Star Trek that come before this in DS9 that have painted a very different picture. 
and obviously a picture that you really respond to, which is uh, about what happens when we when we hit this point in human development, when we have solved things like crime and poverty and and the need for for goods, the the post scarcity society that is the the basis of where we start with twenty third century Star Trek. So I get that, and I, and I really understand and appreciate your frustration here, particularly with this one, because this feels like we've turned a corner. And I will absolutely say to people who get very upset with the idea that you have not embraced and loved every episode of DS9, um, that that we can all cool it here for a bit, because it's not an indictment of Star Trek, okay? You and I can, we we are part of this show, and we, uh, we, we have been at this for so long, because we start with the premise that we like Star Trek. Yeah. And in big, bold letters, Star Trek. Uh, what happens is then you have, within Star Trek series, and within series episodes, that may... May I, I don't want to say counteract, subvert, possibly a bit of that message that we've all sort of grown up thinking. Hey, this is what uh, this is what the premise of that future is all about. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I get it, I really do. Now, I, on the other hand, I, I'll start just with production. I think this is a very well produced couple of episodes of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just a, a very well produced couple of episodes of TV. Acting overall is very good. Pacing is pretty good. Look, I love Bernie Casey. I think he's awesome uh, pretty much in everything I've ever seen. Um, and from a character thing, this is the Gul Dukat I was waiting for. Yeah. Because so far, Gul Dukat has just been the mustache-twirling bad guy. And the only real nuance we've gotten from Cardassians has been with Garrick. But we need more than that if the Cardassians are going to continue throughout the series. And I have a pretty good feeling they will. So, um, so we needed this and we needed to start seeing some development there. Also interesting side note on this, um, kind of interesting to see a Star Trek episode in which most of the damage done uh, was to a uniform. Um, every other shot that was fired was on stun, even the space battle scenes, which were produced well, uh, because we're talking about a TV budget here. And every time you do outer space shots with ships, with multiple ships shooting each other, flying around, that gets more and more and more expensive. Uh, but nothing there inflicted damage or it inflicted very little damage. <laughs> you know, you're forgetting about the 78 Cardassians who died in the prologue. Well, we did have that, and that blowed up real good. That blowed up real good. <laughs> right. But, but everything else, every time a shot was fired, it was like, oh, well, we're, we're going to shake a little bit, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, we'll give it a few weeks, and I'm sure we'll have phasers that just vaporize everything in sight. So, uh, fine. Um, so, yes, I, I think it is a very well-produced show. Um, but it does feel like a turning point to me. And... I'm curious to see now where this goes, because, again, for people who know that Ken and I are not as deeply familiar with DS9, we do still know the broad strokes. We we do still know a lot of what is to come. Um, But I'm very curious to see if there is some redemption going forward for the Federation. Um, I don't think Cisco's speech is entirely wrong with the idea that people elsewhere have it easier 
But you're right. I left off that first part saying that 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 was the problem, as if the problem that that exists is the problem. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm anxious to see if there is some redemption here for uh, for some Federation ideas and ideals that get us back to the place. Say, you know what? We we should want everybody to have this. So that kind of brings me around to morals, meanings, messages. I I, I don't. I'm really challenged by this because I don't know if there is one. I, I think if there is one, Quark has actually got the best statement in the episode. Quark is the one who says in that jail cell to Sakona, peace can be had for an all-time low price. You just have to do it. You, you just have to, you have to look across the aisle or look across planets or whatever it is and say, those people are armed and so are we. Um, that situation isn't going to get any better. We can't sit here and wait for one of us to blow the other up. We have to decide that we'll actually reach across and work for peace. And that could even be done with the simplicity of just asking, just sitting down at the table. So I, I respect what Quark had to say there. I think that he's got one of the most positive things to come out of this episode, even though he's still creepy quark <laughs> so uh, i'll hand it to him for that mission log is produced by roddenberry entertainment executive producer rod roddenberry hey if you want to check out some more stuff from roddenberry uh some more podcasts even podcast.roddenberry.com is a great place to start oh you got your mission log your mission log live sometimes <laughs> women at war priority one and the trek files podcast.roddenberry.com If you'd like to help support this show directly, that would be awesome. Patreon.com slash missionlog is the place to do that. For even more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com Next week, The Wire. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. In my circuit canon, Cal and his pal take their ship and fly across the galaxy helping people. It is Route 66, meets Highway to Heaven, meets Battlestar Galactica. I am going to pitch this. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.